If you have a milkshake, and I have a coffee fribble from Friendly's, and you have a DQ blizzard, and I have a Neapolitan shake from In-N-Out, well, I'm going to drink all those because I got a sweet tooth. Welcome to <laughs> Film is Lit, the podcast where we take a piece of literature and compare and contrast it to its film or TV adaptation. We've been doing mostly film adaptations, but mm-hmm. we will eventually get to TV. Don't you worry. My name is Danny. I'm the film expert, pronouns he, him. I'm Laura, she, her, and, and I'm the... F- oh, I interrupted you. <laughs> and I'm the literature expert. And today we have a very special episode because we have another guest, our first guest since Robin, mm-hmm. Laura's brother, in season one. We're keeping it in the family. We have another... <laughs> Welcome, my father, Pete. Hello. Glad to be here. <laughs> Thank you for coming on our podcast. He is a avid listener, yes. I might add. <laughs> and also a fellow film buff. He's very knowledgeable mm-hmm. and just an expert in everything, we should say. so. Yes, he's a professor. He's the first professor of a few professors that will be on this podcast. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So today we are covering quite a a heavy movie, but one of my favorites based off of an equally compelling... And heavy. (laughs) Yeah, heavy novel. So the book in question is Oil Oil by by Upton Upton Sinclair. Sinclair. And the movie, I mean, you know it if if you're listening (laughs) to this, but... Paul Thomas Anderson's There, there Will, Will Be, Be Blood. Blood. Oh boy, one of my favorites. <laughs> I'm so pumped to finally get around to this. I mean, what what a film. If you're a cinephile, you've definitely seen this film before. But I don't know of anyone who has read the book other than us. It's I'd not... be surprised, yeah. And for the record, my dad has read the novel very recently. And... Since it took place in Southern California, we thought it would be a good time for my dad to hop in. Um, yeah, Pete being a California native, he grew up in San Carlos, where I actually inexplicably have family living in San Carlos as well. Like 10 I, minutes down the road. It is a strange coincidence. Um, I'm looking into it, still having some people look into it. I'm not sure <laughs> if Laura was stalking me before <laughs> we met, but yeah, something's suspect. But, Something's up. <laughs> yeah, but we're going to get into our, our personal journeys with both the book and the movie. So Pete, you're our guest. How oh. about you go, with, you go first with your personal journey with the properties. Go sure, on. thank you. So I have been, they actually have returned to reading via audiobook. So it's been decades really since I read any kind of novel or whatnot. And so just because of my work and, and whatnot. And so it's kind of been fun to getting back into literature. Mm-hmm. And I came upon this book primarily because of your podcast, the book and the movie. We're, and We're honored. Yes, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yes. It's so uh, Laura recommended the book, and so I got it to downloaded it for audiobook listening. And because I have a about a forty minute commute, forty minutes on a good day, an hour yeah. and a half on a bad day, <laughs> I have been able to listen to books like Oil, and and really get into them and really enjoy them. So that's that's my journey with the book. And then regarding the movie, of course, again that was recommended by you two, 
and I enjoyed watching the film. I, I had to watch it in, with a little bit of an interruption in between, but... Uh, <laughs> That's fair. Honestly, yeah. it's, what is it, two hours and no, 40 minutes? It wasn't so much... It was a little bit the length, but, but it was uh, sort of to cater to your mom's interest because <laughs> this isn't a movie that she would have enjoyed, and I was yeah. watching it by myself, and and then eventually got a little bit late, so I, yeah. I finished up the next day, but... That's yeah. my journey. Yeah, with a title like "There Will Be Blood," I don't think <laughs> I don't think your mom would, would like that. Yeah. So. Well, I'll go next, just because I know you have the coup de gras of journeys. Well, bless you. But I don't know what that means, <laughs> but go ahead. So my journey is very short with this book as well. The only introduction that I had to Upton Sinclair's work was "The Jungle," which I've read once only once I think but I really enjoyed it I think I was probably the only person in my high school class that enjoyed reading it but I was just really interested in the way that he wrote the novel it's very based in reality Mm -hmm. and based on a lot of research so while it's technically a novel obviously I'm sure a lot of people know that it was very influential on the government and interestingly Uh, Because I work a lot with the FDA, it kicked off a lot of the conversations with the Roosevelt administration to draft the first form of the Food and Drug Act, uh, which I think is really interesting since I work with the FDA all the time. So this book I had never heard of before, and I think I probably would have shied away from it just because I knew that the movie was pretty intense. And so I don't think knowing what I knew about the movie would have led me to the book. But after doing a little bit of research, because Danny definitely wanted to watch the movie for the podcast, I dove into this book and the movie is so different. It's only based on the first 150 pages or so of the novel, which is about... A third, would you say? Yeah, a third. My copy has 550 pages. Oh, so... So, Yeah. Yeah, less than a third. So, yeah, I read it. I think I really enjoyed it just because it made me think of driving between Los Angeles and San Francisco because of all the oil fields that you drive through on the five. And yeah, it was interesting to learn about Southern California in the 20s. I don't know a lot about that time period. So I had a lot of fun reading it. And I had never seen the movie. I don't know if I'll ever watch it again, but it was enjoyable in a lot of ways. So I'm interested to dive into the analysis. Right. It's on this not one. your typical type of movie, but I still wanted to show it to you because it is such a full meal, if you will. Yeah. And the craft at display is such that mm-hmm. I, I just had had to show you. Yeah. So, for uh, sure. Well Danny now, share your journey with the book and the movie. The year was two thousand nine. <laughs> I I keep on going back to this in the podcast, but my freshman year of high school was this huge year for me in terms of finding out my cinematic interest. I think that's when I truly became a cinephile, so I just front-loaded all the classics. And I also knew about There Will Be Blood, mostly from it losing to No Country for Old Men at the 2008 Oscars. And I, I just didn't get around to There Will Be Blood because I knew that a lot of people were linking the two films. But Mm -hmm. I finally sat down to watch it and it completely just changed changed my whole world, rocked me to my core. I know that's a very typical statement for 
anyone who likes films or is working in the film. But yeah, I, I was hooked immediately. Became a Paul Thomas Anderson fan. Watched his previous work, Punch Drunk Love, Magnolia, Boogie Nights. And he quickly became one of my favorites along with Christopher Nolan. And then I didn't read the book because I had read, also, also read The Jungle in high school. And I was one of those <laughs> kids who was not vibing with the book. I get what he was going for. It's not that I didn't like it from a historical context, but I just couldn't really. It's like, okay, I, I, I get the message. The meat industry is, is bad. Dad, so. did you read The Jungle in high school? I have never, <clears throat> excuse me, I've never read it. Yeah. Yeah, I, it's interesting. It I came know. out when you were born, yeah. am I right? <laughs> Just I know. kidding. Wow. I know of it, but no, I've never read it. Never yeah, and I guess, what's the term? True fiction is not necessarily my my type of genre, although in Cold Blood... Historical by, fiction. Uh, historical fiction. Uh, so in Cold Blood by you know uh, Capote, that's something that, that I do like because oh, that, that story a, is so, so good. compelling. But, you should read that too, Dad. But usually with historical fiction, it's usually like, okay, what's true, what's not? Why not just you know tell the whole truth or construct a completely new story? So I didn't get around to reading the book in, until this podcast, and I also listened to it on audiobook, and I really enjoyed learning about California during the 20s, most notably Bakersfield area, and learning about the oil industry. But I kind of hit a wall as soon mm. as we passed the 150-page mark of yeah. when it diverted yeah. from the movie. And, I mean, the first 150 pages are so far from the movie to begin with that... Uh, Paul Tom- Thomas Anderson changed the title of his script from Oil to There Will Be Blood because he, he said it's it's not so closely connected where I can have the same title. So yeah. that would be respectful to change it, I think. Both, both Oil with exclamation point. Oil! Uh, <laughs> oil! <laughs> and and there, will, there Will Be Blood are both great titles in my yeah. opinion. But this movie really propelled me into wanting to become a filmmaker, which was cemented the next year when I saw The Dark Knight by Christopher Nolan. And I'm like, okay, this is what I, I want to make movies now. Mm, so Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the way I kind of want to start out this episode, because we already talked about how it's of the historical fiction genre. Right. I specifically wanted to ask my dad to talk a little bit about how it's rooted in Southern California, but not necessarily exactly based on the Southern California geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I learned so much from my dad when he talks about Southern California, because he's lived here for his whole life. And even though I've also lived here my whole life, like I don't know as much because I haven't been alive for as long. <laughs> <laughs> so I just wanted you to go through sort of the similarities and differences between the fictional novel and the history of Southern California. Sure. So the couple of the things that strike me immediately as, and I think the the book opens so much differently, of course, than the film. Yeah. In the book, yeah. It the and we'll talk about it. The focus of the the book is certainly the uh, the protagonist is <clears throat> Daniel Plainview, the father, the oil man. Mm-hmm. And in the book, it's it's more the uh, the son. But anyway, it begins, of course, as they're driving through California. Right. And as you mentioned earlier, Laura. That's something that we've done over and over and over again. 
And I, I found that to be very nostalgic to, yeah. to listen to that part of the book. And of course, I, I mentioned to your mom that we, when we go on walks, of course, we, I tell her a little bit about the books that I'm reading and, and fill her in. And the dad, as he's driving along, he notices the, the traffic signs and oh, you know the yeah. speed limit and so on and so forth. And his dad essentially says, well, those are really for those stupid people who don't know how to drive. Yeah. I know how to drive, yeah. so I can go at any speed that I the like. The elitism is introduced very early in the exactly. novel. Exactly, <laughs> yes, precisely. Right. Well, it's funny, actually, speaking of nostalgia, the way that the son, Bunny, describes his dad when he's driving, it actually made me think of my grandpa, my dad's dad, mm-hmm. because we always give my grandpa a hard time for having, like, the leather coats and the hats and the stuff because he's a very stylish person. Mm-hmm. And so when Bunny's talking about his dad having this driving coat and the driving gloves and the goggles and the hat, I'm like, I like picture my grandpa doing that, like driving up the five and I'm like, oh, I see. Yeah. Well, and, and then when they stop, he very carefully takes his coat right. off. Right. Yeah. And folds it. <laughs> And puts it aside. He yeah. Doesn't, he doesn't just sort of throw it, yeah, throw it aside. Yeah, that's right, but, yeah. But anyway, going back to reality yeah. and so fiction. Regarding the the geography, of course, it's interesting to note that they refer to Los Angeles, for example, as Angel City. Mm-hmm. It's not Los Angeles. Right. They also refer to, and I had to do a little reading to figure this out, they refer to what is now Huntington Beach as Beach City. Nice, so, yeah. And, and there, there are some, there's some history behind that. That, that actually makes sense as well. But I, I've also, you know, between the book and the film, there were some things that were sort of transplanted from one place to another. And I think it was, it was actually difficult for me, speaking of geography though, to identify exactly where the, um, the oil fields were, the, where the Watkins family lived mm-hmm. in the book. Uh, it's a little bit easier to to get a sense in the film. Actually, I think there are a little bit there. There are obviously visual cues. Mm-hmm. Number one, but it's a it's an interesting look into Southern California geography. And and I think going back to some of our trips through Southern California, I've tortured Rebecca, <laughs> Laura's mom, and and the kids by driving them through some of these oil field areas. And uh, there's a there's a road that cuts between the two main thoroughfares between Los Angeles and San Francisco, either the 5 or the 101, and there's this little highway called the 33 that actually goes through all of these oil fields Mm -hmm. in central California. And this is clearly, there. in fact, there's a museum in a little town called Taft in in, uh, sort of central California that I think, I I noticed in the credits that they use that as a, there's a museum there. And they used it, I think, for source material. Oh, interesting. What a yeah. fun fact. Neither of us pulled so, that up. Right. At least I didn't. What I have, I don't have Taft in there, but Paul Thomas Anderson had picked up the book Oil while he was in London. And he was looking How for his next project. And he was looking about to adapt this book, but he didn't know how to go about doing it. But it wasn't until he went back home, because he, he's from the Valley of uh, Los Angeles. Oh, is that why? Yeah, he picked up the book in the first place because he was homesick in London. Mm -hmm. I I forget what project he was working on or or finishing before going to his next project. But yeah, he was homesick and then he finally went back to California to to actually tackle this project. And in my research, it just says he went to um, a museum concerning the... That was probably it. Yeah, so (laughs) it was probably it. And 
it's funny, this goes into the fun facts of the making of the film, but he wanted to use many um, old oil fields in California for the shooting of this movie, but they've changed so mm-hmm. much yeah. in, in the past hundred years. In the yeah. past hundred years that California looked nothing like it did or or I shouldn't say look nothing, but looked different than when he was going for the authentic pictures he saw in the museum. So they end, their shooting location ended up being Marfa, Texas. Yes, mm-hmm. I noticed that. Which yeah. is it's nuts and he, for a second there, wasn't going to make the project because he's like, I want to shoot on location, but I can't find anything that looks like authentic 1900s oil fields. But then one of his scouts said, how about Marfa, Texas? That's where the Coen brothers are currently shooting another film right now, No <laughs> yeah. Country for Turns Old Men. No- right. <laughs> and, and which is even you know funnier because they those these two films would go head-to-head at the Oscars, mm-hmm. No Country for Old Men coming out on top for most of the, the mm-hmm. awards. But Well, yeah. so we should mention that the book was published in 1927. And something that I really enjoyed visually seeing after reading the book, because I just have no context for oil fields or the oil industry or the oil business, I thought it was really, really interesting to go from being a little bit lost to seeing the mechanics of a turn-of-the-century oil derrick actually work Mm -hmm. and it raised the stakes for me about the men's lives that were put at such a high risk Uh, because it's obvious in the book that there are a lot of people dying and the fire that happens about the 150 page mark which is that striking scene in the movie mm-hmm. you know when the fire that ends up happening at the derrick that bunny in the book discovers and the one that causes hw hw to go deaf in the movie that obviously is in the book and the stakes are high but to watch for example you know, two men at the bottom of an oil well smoking cigarettes, <laughs> and then the irony of watching those men be killed because something is dropped, because the drill is dropped from above and literally impales one of them. Mm-hmm. Like, it really, watching that is very dark and mm-hmm. it raised the stakes, and I was just very shocked by how intense it was for me to watch those things. You know, it's like you can feel the heat too when that fire explodes. And in fact, the lines are very similar when the father says, which again is J. Arnold Ross in the book and Daniel Daniel Plainview in the movie, they say to their, you know, right-hand man, like, oh, why are people upset that this is burning? Like, we have oil and that's the point. But in... The novel, they're just, the stakes weren't there. And then when it's happening on screen, you see how evil <clears throat> Daniel Plainview has become because he's put so many lives at risk and he's laughing mm-hmm. and jumping for joy and, you know, c- completely slick with oil, covered in oil, and his son is has just, has suffered, just suffered a head injury. You know, and he's completely... I mean, I, the stakes of this movie were just jacked up to a crazy degree. And I really enjoyed that. I thought that was really intense. Yeah, it's akin to learning about war in history class, but then actually watching something like Saving Private Ryan, where you actually see the effects, the mm-hmm. horrific effects of 
battle, and once you have that visual context, it's, it becomes, oh, okay, you see the brutality in that. And especially with, you're talking about just constructing these oil derricks, like you have to go down mm-hmm. a long ways in a big hole, and if anything falls down that's even a little bit heavy, and it hits you, you're dead. Or strike a small spark. Yeah. It goes up in flame. It, it's just you're always on the precipice of death, yeah. as you can see, and right. um, and that fire. I mean, what what an image in the movie. But I think that's something that the movie really honors Upton Sinclair's text because my favorite passage was during this fire when Upton Sinclair says, "There was a tower of flame. Mountains of smoke rose to the sky, and mountains of flame came seething down to the earth." Every jet that struck the ground turned into a volcano and rose again, higher than before. Wow, what a what intense imagery brought to life by Paul Thomas Anderson and his uh, cinematographer Robert Ellswit, who took home the Oscar that year for cinematography. And a, a quick aside, I know I'm going on a long time, but speaking of cinematography. I gotta mention my boy, Roger Deakins, <laughs> once again. So at the 2008 Oscars, Roger Deakins was up for No Country for Old Men, as we've talked about. But at the same year, he was also up for his work on the assassination of Jesse James mm-hmm. by the coward, coward Robert Ford. Have you seen that? I haven't Pete? seen oh, it. I know the film. You got it. It's on Hulu. We got Hulu <laughs> here <laughs> after this. It's only a three-hour film. We can, we can get it done easy. But I think 2008 was the strongest year for cinematography uh, ever, in my opinion. Mm. So we had... This movie, Robert with Robert Ellswit's cinematography. Then we had Roger Deakins twice. We had Seamus McGarvey for Atonement. Uh, McGarvey, mm-hmm. he shot Bad Times the El Royale, a favorite oh, of ours. You saw that, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, that. That was so good. And that was great. And then also the Diving Bell and the Butterfly. That movie was nominated for cinematography. That movie a little artsy fartsy, but uh, still the cinematography is great in that. So 2008. Pretty phenomenal year. year. Yeah, banner <laughs> year. And this is one of the few times where I understand Roger Deakins not winning for, <laughs> again, nominated twice. Uh, and he would go on to be nominated six more times. This was his seventh and eighth time. So he would be nominated six more times before he'd win. So <laughs> that's just a quick aside. But yeah, striking cinematography by Robert Ellswit. That scene when the oil derrick erupts in flames i remember we were sitting there watching it and we just both just went wow just mm-hmm. involuntary and i i've seen this movie at, 10 times at least but every single time i see that it just blows me away it's mm-hmm. stunning uh, yeah rightfully so yeah well do we want to talk a little bit about the thematic changes between the book and the movie because sure. there are very striking mm-hmm. changes So kind of going back to the movie first, the reason that I like that all of the stakes are raised in the whole movie is because I think it's commenting on a deeper sickness of the human condition. I think that Paul Thomas Anderson is using Daniel Plainview to explore what greed does to humans and how evil that can make people. In fact, I think by the end of the movie, it's really clear that Daniel Plainview has become the devil. Like he's completely consumed by the sin that has sort of spun out of all this greed. Right. And, you know, you can see that in when he says, 
milkshake <laughs> and he has all these moments and where he i am the third revelation right yeah. and then the last line of the movie is i am finished, I am finished. which is sort of a play off of jesus's last lines of it, it is, is finished, finished right yeah so i think that raising the stakes of all these things is really appropriate because we have a very deep commentary again on greed I think the book is interesting because it's very political, and Dad, you can talk about this a little further as well, but it's more commenting on the ways that like social Darwinism creates hatred and inequality in America, which is really interesting. Now, I think some of the politics that they talk about are slightly appropriate and contemporary to our times now that we're living in, but it also really focuses on communism and socialism. Mm -hmm. And I think a little bit of that for me by the end of the book got a little bit like Atlas Shrugged, <laughs> where, where it was kind of like, okay, Upton Sinclair, like, I, I get it. <laughs> like, you're not a fan of either socialism or communism. And you think that, you know, if they all worked together, that we could bring ourselves into a higher version of democracy, sort mm -hmm. of. Uh, so that got a little preachy for me by the end. But yeah, I don't know. Do you guys have want to comment on the differences? Well, yeah. So I think that one of the great features of the film is that focus on mm -hmm. the oil business and greed. Because the the book covers so many topics. And yeah. this is one of the things I was sharing with your mom. It covers, as you were talking about, greed, society, right? <laughs> From the 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 people who lived in, you know, the the what was the sister's name? Uh, Ruth? No, no, no. The sister, uh, Bunny's sister. Oh. Starts with a B. Oh. I can't remember. Anyway, oh, yeah. she oh, loved God. living in high society, you know. Yeah. And and she ran in that and had a great time. She couldn't understand why her brother didn't didn't uh, jump into that as well. But it also talks about workers' rights, organized labor. You know, that's, that's what Paul was. Right. And I'll come back to Paul in a second. But uh, it talks about politics, right? The Teapot mm -hmm. Dome scandal. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, it, it covers so many things. And that uh, with Paul Thomas Anderson focusing just on the story about oil, I think that was a, it was a great decision. There's, this mm -hmm. would have been like a, a miniseries, maybe, yeah. if, <laughs> if you were going to try to make this book into a, uh, ad adapted into uh, film or television. It would have to be a miniseries. It's, there it covers too many things. Yeah. yeah. You know, it could almost be a sort of thing like Black Mirror, where you almost have separate seasons to deal with separate storylines. Yeah. Because, and they could all converge in Southern California, and that could be the only thing they have in common. Right. But like my dad is saying, it's literally from A oh, to Z. And I forgot <laughs> to mention... The entertainment business, right? Yes, yeah. yes, it because, critiques Hollywood. Because Bunny's Bunny's uh, girlfriend is an you know is an actress, right? And so it, and then there's also the the partner to Mr. Ross, Mr. Roscoe, right? Who's mm -hmm. sort of a William Randolph Hearst, right? Yes, and and anyway. it's and it kind of touches on World War One yep. and politics, foreign affairs. Mm -hmm. Because they mm -hmm. talk about being in Russia and Siberia. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a lot. So, so let me go back to Paul then for just a second. So I was almost disappointed in the film in the mm -hmm. way that... So you meet Paul early in the film, just like you do in the book. Mm -hmm. And that's the only time you ever see Paul. There's an interesting aside, of course, when they first meet Eli. Yeah. And mm -hmm. he looks exactly like Paul. And they kind of both... Uh, Daniel and, and H.W. look at each other and like, wait, who is this? Isn't this, isn't this Paul? Anyway, 
but you never see Paul again later in the film. What I think, getting to the theme of the film, is that Paul, of course, throughout the book, is a is a voice of conscience, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's he's thoughtful. He cares about people. He cares about he he cares very much for the the Ross uh, father and son. He mm-hmm. he thinks a lot about them. Uh, obviously, he cares about the workers that that he helps to organize and so on. And because he's completely cut out of the film, you lose that conscience. Mm-hmm. And yeah. and the the film has no conscience in terms of absolutely in terms of you know Daniel Plainview. He he just is driven entirely by his greed and so on. Mm-hmm. And so, in a way, I think that probably was a decision made by the director to exclude him mm-hmm. because otherwise there would be so much of a I don't know that you would lose that complete jump and and delving into the darkness. Totally. So, anyway, yeah. That was a, that was a thought I had, and and a, and a, obviously a major departure from the from the book. Mm-hmm. Right, and all of Paul Thomas Anderson's movies, save for Phantom Thread or Punch Drunk Love, have that very nihilistic edge. That exactly. very this darkness to them. Even even Boogie Nights, which celebrates this kind of family within the adult entertainment industry. I mean, they're all going through some really dark stuff. Troubling well, Phantom Thread is pretty dark as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, if... It, yeah. Twisted in that yeah. sense. I mean, I we both love the ending to it, but a lot of people yeah. watch that and are like, Jesus, <laughs> like, what is that ending? But, oh, that's we, so but good. We, we both that. really enjoy it. Yeah. yeah, and Paul Thomas Anderson, as you're saying, Pete, takes away all the commentary like with Paul and in the movie the actor Paul Dano plays both parts and um, once he sells he sells the information to Daniel Plainview and Fletcher his partner Paul does yeah right. once Paul yeah, does yeah. he yeah he, he's That's gone it. like he he's got, he, he was um, moved by greed too like he, was. he and he was the true prophet as Daniel says at the end of the movie to Eli and Prophet, that's a very specific word because where Paul Thomas Anderson takes away all the commentary about socialism and communism and uh, and the entertainment industry and all this, he adds religion to it. This movie is, has a lot of religious motifs mm-hmm. and uh, religion is Daniel Plainview's main competitor right. in mm-hmm. this movie. Yeah, yeah. completely opposed. And yet the, the religion that's portrayed is quite a skewed religion too, and and you find out ultimately yeah. that that Eli isn't who he portrays himself as. Right? right. And despite this movie having a lot to say about religion, it's less a critique on being religious and going to church, and it's more so a critique on saying like, hey, everything is a business here. Every mm-hmm. job, whether you're a minister, priest, oil man, you're all motivated by greed. Like mm-hmm. everyone can be is susceptible to being corrupted. Right. So in the movie, oil is now replacing what Americans are valuing. So everyone was practicing religion and then slowly everyone was moving to kind of the working class oil fields and and clearly Daniel Plainview doesn't have any time for yeah. uh, go, going to church and and kind of on a, a poetic, sinister sense, like he's controlling the blood of the land, you could mm-hmm. say. The mm-hmm. oil, the blood mm-hmm. of the land. And it's, it's, the allegories are pretty clear for you that he's, he's controlling more of the blood of the land than Eli preaches he, that he's controlling mm-hmm. the blood of the land. And, and now Americans, instead of worshiping God, they're worshiping 
wealth and power. Mm -hmm. So it's this constant contentious fight between these two men, whereas Eli in the novel is only has a, a small part. Yeah, and I think that Upton Sinclair uses Eli to satirize religion as well, mm -hmm. because you find out that eventually... You eventually find out that he's also a bad actor yeah. and he's been using the church for his own gain. Mm -hmm. And I think it's, it is satire. He is made fun of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in this, I think he is darker. He is more he sinister yeah. and he's more greedy. Uh, and I actually, I really like the way that you described the movie as an allegory because I wanted to talk about the changes in the names because they're so drastic. Oh boy. And Got a lot to say <laughs> about yeah. this. You also, got it in my notes. <laughs> okay, so sort of at, coming from it with a literature degree, it's very clear that, well, they're so different. And so when I started looking at them, and I went between J. Arnold Ross, which is really specifically crafted to be an any person's exactly. kind of name. It In is. fact, I don't I, I won't read the beginning of the novel, but if you pick up a copy, it is really good. There's a paragraph that opens the novel and well, maybe I'll read just a little bit of it because it's really well written. But it says, shuffle the cards and deal a new round of poker hands. They differ in every way from the previous round. And yet it is the same pack of cards and the same game with the same spirit. The players grim faced and silent, surrounded by a haze of tobacco smoke. So with this novel, a picture of civilization in Southern California, as the writer has observed it, during 11 years residence. The picture is the truth and the great mass of detail actually exists, but the cards have been shuffled. Names, places, dates, details of characters, episodes, everything has been dealt over again. So that is the point, is that all of these people can be shuffled around and it just stands for, you know, in every generation, mm -hmm. there are gonna be these greedy people who take advantage of others, blah, blah, blah. So then to go to the movie where you have names like Plainview, and I was going to give an example of how actually J.D. Salinger uses the last name of Glass. He writes about the Glass family, and they're supposed to represent a very clear-eyed and pure family. Mm -hmm. And so again, with Plainview, it's actually playing with that a little bit, and it's hijacking it because obviously Daniel Plainview is not clear-eyed he's very single-minded mm -hmm. and he presents himself to other people as very pure, but obviously he has his one single goal and he's gonna use people by manipulating them. And I also wanted to point out that the Sunday family's name was changed. So in the book, it's the Watkins family, which again, very okay, all American, yep. yeah. you know, forgettable, generic. But in the movie, they're the Sunday family because they represent this family sort of on the spectrum of who's being taken advantage of by organized religion. Mm -hmm. So, you know, very sadly, the father is a very devout Christian who believes that he should beat his family into submission because he's the head of the household. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have all the way, you know, to the women who are kind of the victims in the house. And then you have Eli who perverts that image of a pure church-going man to make money for himself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I don't know, do you guys have commentary or did I <laughs> talk no, too long? No, I, I mean, it's obvious that the names change. What's interesting, though, the 
I think a lot of the other names change as well. So Daniel Plainview's associate, it, I think a lot of that changes. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was interesting, though, that one name that didn't change was Joe Gunda, who yeah. dies in an accident at, in the oil field. And they use his name, obviously, in the book and, and in the movie as well. And I thought that was kind of interesting that in spite of all the other changes that took place... Now, of course, the first names of the Watkins clan, so they don't really change, but... But this one fellow who, and, and it's, it's about the only time when you see a little bit of humanity from Daniel mm-hmm. Plainview is when Dan, when uh, Joe Gunda dies in an accident and they go to, to try to gather his belongings and so on and so forth. But I, I don't know that many other names are the same, but that one, mm-hmm. it just struck me that that happened to be one name that stayed the same. But yeah. as, as you mentioned, oh, and there's one other thing I had to say about the names too. Do they ever explain H.W.'s, what his initials mean in the film? Uh, no, and I actually tried to look at that, but even on IMDb, it's H.W. Just says H.W., yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought that was interesting that they that they didn't give him a, a name. But... H.W. and baby H.W. <laughs> <laughs> right. Build separately, obviously. Yeah. Two exactly. different. So, anyway. <laughs> they weren't played by the same uh, baby. Go ahead, Danny. If you, well, you want to talk of about course. names. Daniel being my name, that's something <laughs> right. that that speaks to me that I had a particular interest in. So the name Daniel derives from the Hebrew name, uh, meaning God is my judge. Kind of this very imposing <laughs> word, like only God can can go toe to toe with me or, or or pass judgment. And that's kind of Daniel is sees himself as a, a God among men and. He doesn't, sure. he doesn't even relate to other people as he has that drunken monologue with his supposed brother mm. later mm-hmm. on in the movie. Of course, it's revealed, as you mentioned, over the course of the movie that he's more of a, a devil figure. And right. that's kind of confirmed at the end where he's just, really just pure evil. Mm-hmm. Also, and this might be me completely reading into it, but there's that story of Daniel in the lion's den, and that's a story I liked as a young kid because I'm like, oh, I, I have that same name. That means I'm brave, too. <laughs> and Paul F. Tompkins, who's a comedian who shows up briefly in the beginning of this movie, he has a story about Daniel Day-Lewis on set, and he would, he would sit alone in his chair, and according to Paul F. Tompkins, he would growl to himself like a lion? That's a quote from him. Like a lion. Now, again, this is most likely me reading into it. I don't know if Daniel Day-Lewis read the story of Daniel in the lion's den and wanted to just embody a lion, but I don't know. That that just seems kind of Yeah, well, uh, him cool to me. being a, <laughs> a method. method actor, if anybody would have looked deeper into the meaning of a name, you know, he probably would. And he's probably very familiar with it, too, being his real first name. Right. So yeah, I think making cha- changing his name to his first name to Daniel, a very a very common Christian name, was a deliberate choice by Paul Thomas Anderson to make their religious allegory stand out a little bit more. And mm-hmm. of course, he goes into crafting him into a devil character. That so I'm now moving away from talking about names and now mm-hmm. more into how Paul Thomas Anderson crafted him into a devil. So when he first goes to see uh, Eli during his one of his services in his church of the Third Revelation, 
he witnesses Eli supposedly take this demon out of this old woman's hands who has arthritis. And Daniel walks in in the middle of this whole ordeal and stands in the back. And of course, Eli, he makes this big show and dance of taking the devil out. And he and the camera is following him almost like the camera is the devil that Eli is holding. And, and Eli throws it out of the church in this big fashion and says, and it left. <laughs> and then the very next shot, it cuts to Daniel Plainview in the back of the church of him looking at the other direction, like Paul Thomas Anderson basically saying, the devil did not leave. He's a false prophet. The devil's here. And what's funny and why I think the script is so amazing, and it didn't, it was up for best adapted screenplay, but it lost to No Country for Old Men, (laughs) is the line when Daniel Plainview says to Eli, well, that was one hell of a goddamn show. He says, so he, which says everything about how Daniel views Eli in one sentence. So he calls it a show, meaning like he's admitting, "Hey, I know, I know your act. I know that you're just mm-hmm. manipulating these people into give. I know you really might not believe everything you're saying, mm-hmm. and you and you're just doing this for money, like I am." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he also says hell and goddamn in, this, in the same <laughs> sentence yeah. to really just kick Eli while he's down. It, it really is a smart kind of underhanded comment. Mm-hmm. Um, PTA has such a great ear for dialogue of any era, and he really mm-hmm. peppers in with these really memorable and funny lines. I mean, this movie is really darkly funny right. as well. Well, I think, yeah, it kind of picks up on the satire in the book. I think Upton Sinclair is a pretty funny guy and he has a lot of... In fact, actually, this is a fun fact about the novel. So we talked a little bit about how it critiques the entertainment industry in Southern California. In fact, this novel was banned for a while by the United States because there's a scene where Bunny and his girlfriend spend a night together in a motel. <laughs> and obviously it's not a heavy sex no, scene. So it's just that they it's just, just that they spend the night in the yep. same room. And so to get it off the banned list, Upton Sinclair redacted literally took a pen and scribbled out the part that had it describes that (laughs) describes it and then sold it as the fig leaf edition (laughs) so he's a funny i think he had a lot of funny ways to look at the world but i do think i love that tonal shift of it being so dark because it's earned it you know it like we talked about in the beginning of the episode having this movie be funnier or have the humor be lighter rather than darker humor, it wouldn't have been the right tone. So like you're saying, I think it's subtle, but it's definitely there. And I think it also just speaks to how intelligent Daniel Plainview is and how, again, he can see very clearly how he needs to manipulate people. Yeah, and he's good at it. Yeah, he's really good at it. (laughs) Well, uh, if I could pick up on something, uh, I noticed in, well, as I think we mentioned in the very beginning that the, the book and, and actually the movie to an extent also is is based on the life very loosely of Edward Doheny. Yes. Did I mention that before? No, okay. well, we talked about the historical factors, okay. but we didn't mention okay. him. Yeah. So Edward Doheny was one of the people who's considered the uh, the father of the oil business in, in California and, and probably in the United States in, in a lot of ways. Now, I did a little bit of reading about Edward Doheny, and 
there are some things that are mentioned in the film so that are parallel with with the life of Edward Doheny. So do you recall when the the quote unquote brother tells tells Daniel a little bit about him because he didn't know this is supposedly a half brother, so he didn't really know him that well. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and he's asking him a little bit about what it was like when he grew up. And he mentions Fond du Lac, Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. Well, that's where Edward Doheny was born. Oh, okay. fun fact. Nice. Awesome. So it's not know. random. Yeah. yeah, it's not random at all. And and in addition, and I think this, there's a little bit of a, a weaving in of the stories because the apparently one of the things, one of the first things that when when Edward Doheny became an adult, is he was a part of the U.S. Geological Survey, mm. and he was sent to Kansas to do some work. And I think there's a mention of that as well in that that whole dialogue that he has with his his so-called brother. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, more, and then finally, two things. So Edward Doheny had two children. One daughter who died as a young girl because she was just sick throughout her life. She's about seven when she died. And then he had a son. And his son was named Ned. He was Edward also, but he mm-hmm. went by Ned. And his son was involved in the Teapot Dome scandal. He, in fact, carried the money, took the money that was used to bribe the Secretary of the Interior to give him the money in order to get the oh, leases. Oh, <laughs> interesting. But later, in order to try to avoid having prosecution and losing some of his assets, he gave his son uh, one of the houses that he owned, a mansion. Mm. Okay, but somewhere along the way, there was a there was another man who was involved in all of these shenanigans, and the the son Ned committed a murder suicide in this mansion. What? Yeah. Didn't know you were going to go there, Pete. Yeah, I didn't know <laughs> you were going to go there. And and this Scandal. was while while um, Edward Doheny was still alive. And he had, you know, all of the things that happened then with regard, you know, the Teapot Dome scandal, he never actually got prosecuted himself. There was a a trial, but he was acquitted. But the Secretary of the Interior did go to jail for his his, uh, actions. Mm -hmm. But after his son died, you know, all these other difficult things that happened with, well, I mean, he brought it on himself, the the bribery Mm -hmm. scandal. But he became a recluse. It mentions in this little Wikipedia that I was reading. Oh, so much like Daniel uh, Plainview, yeah. who became a recluse and then, you know, ultimately was was doing a lot of bad things. Uh, Edward Doheny, he and his wife actually were very charitable. They gave a lot of way, gave away a lot of money. They donated to so many different causes. But he actually became a recluse, and that made me think a little bit about Daniel yeah. Plainview as well. Absolutely. Um, and and actually, I was going to mention one other thing too, because one thing that is well certainly there are, there are more female figures in the book yeah right mm-hmm. but there's almost a almost an exclusion of female characters in the film mm-hmm. right because you you never i mean the uh, hw isn't his biological son so he never really has a, a woman in his life plus he uh, abandons his whenever anyone asks uh daniel plainview about having a wife he right. doesn't even answer the question he moves on or completely ignores it or right. says i have a son oh, the one time he right. did say he said the mother died in childbirth right and but, he, right he but you're lies. right it's a lot yeah. of time yeah he just ignores the question and i thought it was interesting that that there's really a dearth of female characters i mean you could say that the the wife you know who married and, and didn't she she was ruth in the, well she, of course he doesn't marry 
um, the the Watkins girl in the book. Right. But the one he becomes close with, close with in the book is Ruth, I think, right? Mm-hmm. And then but yeah. he, in the film, he marries the daughter Mary, and I think they kind of condense. But she's that's she's completely out of the picture yeah. because the whole communism and right. socialism thing is out. But anyway, I, I just found it interesting that they they kind of excluded women from from the story altogether. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's something that the late great Roger Ebert criticized this movie for. He gave this movie a three and a half out of four stars, but he said it, it wasn't fully perfect for a few reasons kind of the nihilism and, and he also mentioned the exclusion of women i i don't know if it was a deliberate choice by pta it feels like one i well yeah. you know if, if i can just talk briefly about the book too because yeah. i know we're focusing a lot on the film yeah and and with regard to women it was interesting because uh even in the book uh jay arnold ross he had a he had a terrible view of women Right. Yeah. He yeah. he considered them to be temptresses, yeah. even if they weren't, if it, even if it didn't have anything to do with sex, but they just wanted to get your money. Right. It was what like, he was right. thinking of. His ex-wife. And, yeah. and at the same time, Junior, Bunny, learns a lesson, you know, after, because throughout his life, there's women that come into his life or young women or girls or what have you, who look at another woman and say, she's she's going at she's after she loves you mm-hmm. she's mm-hmm. she's fallen for you and of course he he kind of just brushes it off and says no 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 and then as he his eyes open a little bit as he goes on and and i think he he starts to have a completely different view of women certainly than his dad did yeah because his dad really just thought that they were after your money period mm-hmm. so. yeah something that the film has concerning the opposite genders during the christening of the oil derrick for the first time so eli asks daniel to call him up to bless <laughs> yeah. to bless the derrick and in a complete power move he <laughs> calls up eli's sister younger sister mary mm-hmm. who um hw eventually marries at the end instead of calling eli the son of the hills he brings mary up as kind of a daughter of the hills and that's that's the only kind of instance i can really point out to where females are elevated elevated yeah right well and even then he's only doing that as a fuck you toward eli (laughs) it's not because he's interested in women's although (laughs) although he does it is implied that he either beat up Mr. Sunday or That's or, true. or had a stern talking with Mr. Sunday to stop him from beating Mary. That's so, true. So he does yeah. there are glimpses throughout the film and throughout the novel as well of Daniels or in the novel Jane J. R. Um Ross J. R. Ross's humanity. Um, humanity right. in there, mm-hmm. yes, exactly. And so that's one glimpse of it in the movie. Also, you're talking about the the worker who Joe Gunda Joe Gunda was killed, and then even though he does abandon his child uh, <laughs> at the train, it's very subtle. You can't see it, but when he does make that decision to leave H.W. on the train to send him away, you can see it's very subtle. A uh, teardrop going oh, down uh, Daniel Plainview's face, like he does. He's it's clearly eating him up inside. Mm-hmm. And of course, H.W. eventually comes back, but you kind of it's kind of a selfish act because when H.W. comes back, Daniel Plainview says, that does me good. Like, oh, it's great to see you. That does me good. But he never really acknowledges the betrayal to well, his I own son. Well, I think he ended up internalizing that. I think it made him angrier 
because he knew that was such an evil thing to do. Yeah. He did know. Yeah. Like, right. he shows a conscience. And so I think to be able to live with himself, he completely turned it around and said, I needed to do that for my gains. Yeah. But then I think, like, he's so mean mm-hmm. to H.W. when he comes back at the end because he was like, I, I can't even, I can't deal with how evil that was. Like, I yeah. can't deal with that decision. I need you out of my life so that I can live with myself. But then obviously that doesn't work. Mm-hmm. It's obviously failed because he can't live with himself and he's right. completely he alone can't and he clear his conscience. Right. He's obviously very unhappy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, with him at the end just living in this huge mansion with all the wealth you could ever want, all the wealth in the world, but still like like the house itself, Daniel is empty right mm-hmm. inside. There's mm-hmm. no there's no substance. Right. Yeah. Him. Well, and I think in the book he, uh J. Arnold Ross certainly has more humanity yeah because yeah. he he does seem to care about his workers he doesn't always know how to deal with it and and in a way he has the same defect that bunny does you remember how paul tells bunny that he's weak mm-hmm. you know he wants to do a good thing but he falls back into his pattern of watching and not right. really doing anything and I think Mr. Ross has a similar weakness. Now, obviously, he has much more power, and so he can throw that around. Mm. But he was not willing to stand up to his fellow oil company executives and do something about the about the workers mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. you know he 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 fell back on that. Well, you know, they wouldn't give me a loan if I don't you know stay in this association with them and so on. So he kind of had that same defect, but. He certainly had more humanity than than Daniel Plainview did because he he I think he really did. I only cared about his son and his well his daughter right. too but especially his son you could see just the way he doted over his son throughout mm-hmm. the story he right you remember when Bunny feels very compelled to enlist right at the very end of World War One he's actually very excited to go to overseas to fight for what he believes in. But his father, quietly behind the scenes, arranges for him to have sort of a desk job because right. obviously he really cares. But I think it's, it is pretty funny. You mentioned in the very beginning of the episode the line about how basically traffic lights and the rules of the road, which may not even have been laws back then, but how those are only for the people who don't know how to drive. Yeah. And they don't apply, they don't apply to, me. to me. I yeah. think that's really his mindset yep. because he's become so rich that he's been able to just throw money at problems and they go away. Mm -hmm. And I think it escalates and Bunny sees it. Mm -hmm. He sees his father and finally, you know, he sees his father paying very little for for leases Mm -hmm. on land that he's leasing from people who actually own it for the oil. And then he finally sees all the way up to them paying for Harding to become the president. And Bunny kind of keeps trying to be that conscience of like, like, wait a second, like I'm hearing in my classes <laughs> that these things are wrong. Like dad, he, I think he literally says a couple times, dad, isn't that bribery? Mm-hmm. And his dad is like, no, like you're learning these things theoretically and hypothetically, right. but I need to do these things because otherwise other people will do those things to me mm-hmm. and you don't want those things to happen. So these rules don't apply to us because mm-hmm. we're actually do- doing the moving and grooving. Yeah. Well, it's sort of, he keeps talking about, well, this, this is the real world. Right. You're learning it in class from a book. This right. is what happens in the real world. Right. Yeah. And he, no, he's very good at, at 
justifying his actions. Yeah. And he's very removed from the worker's experience, which is kind of, again, goes back to the whole point of the novel is that the workers are the people who are actually doing things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as soon as you start stratifying society to that extent, you have this insane elitism that allows Mm -hmm. people to have, you know, 15 cards, which has only become more exasperated today. Mm -hmm. You know, we see people who are homeless and then we see people like Donald Trump who can buy his way into the White House and then use the entire country to make himself money. Like when you have that spectrum, I think what Upton Sinclair is saying is that when you don't listen to people who are more interested in the workers' perspective, then you get this complete social Darwinism where mm-hmm. then you have people on the top saying, well, you don't deserve these things. Yeah, no, that, that came up very clearly, especially in the book where he makes those statements that, well, you know, we, we'd like to help these people out, but really they just want to take away this what we've earned right. rightfully. Yeah. Uh, right. Not recognizing that, you know, you used to be in that position and you had to work hard and you earned your you earned your living in order to get where you are and, and right. trying to keep them pushing them down and preventing them from ever having that opportunity. Right. And, you know, I had this really interesting discussion when I was taking ethics and philosophy when I was a freshman at in college with Dr. Lang, shout out, who also listens to this podcast. Uh, we had this really interesting conversation about whether inheritance is ethical because not only is money given to you, I mean, again, we can use Donald Trump as an example. So he thinks that he's worked for his money. And a lot of people who are very wealthy believe that they have worked for their money. But a lot of those people are in those positions because they were given a leg up over people mm-hmm. who, you know, for example, p- minorities who live in America, like they work very hard, but they weren't given the leg up to be able to make more. And they weren't given the inheritance that their parents had been able to own because they were already privileged going back to the 1700s and before when they started taking advantage of Native Americans. <laughs> A great companion piece for your argument is uh, Knives Out, which we all mm. love. That, Such a that good movie. Everything you just said, I think, is the thesis of that movie, of this very elitist, rich family who uh, multiple members talk about how minorities or people, they need to work, and it belongs, this country is for Americans, America is for Americans, mm-hmm. the irony being that they were born into their right. wealth right. and I think in the character of Marta represents someone who does work hard and is a genuinely nice person and well you you need to watch the movie if you haven't seen it but <laughs> remember when we could see that in the theaters right I know <laughs> but I think Ryan Johnson who wrote and directed that has who we very, also got to see introduce the movie in the yes, theater just saying he has <laughs> a, agrees with you of the irony of that uh, elitist mentality of you know of thinking that you're entitled to something because of your wealth having not earned it right and what happens to actual hard-working people who are nice so yeah that's that's another recommendation to yes. to go along with what, what you're saying <laughs> uh, a little more uplifting than there will be blood yeah. but i do have a question for both of you what do you think happens after daniel plainview says i'm finished what's the next step after that Oh, that's such a good question. I didn't even really think about this. He probably just pays for it to go away, you know. He probably pays... Obviously, he pays off his butler who comes down and... 
<laughs> you know, you Mr. assume he's sort of right, Mr. Mr. Daniel. <laughs> he, you know, clears away his meal mm-hmm. and. You know, he probably just pays someone to clean up the body and get rid of it. And he just sort of continues brooding. And I don't see him ever making amends with his son or his Mm daughter-in-law. I think he's just too... He's he's had such a complete transformation into the devil character that there's just no reviving. Well, and when you think about it, he's already walked through this before, right? Because he killed the Mm -hmm. fellow who said he was his brother and then later confessed that he wasn't. He -hmm. killed him, he buried him, and he moved on. Right. So I think I think you're right that probably he uses his influence to just sort of make this go away. Obviously it's it's a little bit more clear what happened, but you know, he. I think he would be able to make it go away. Ultimately. Yeah. Although it seems, yes, I agree that he would. Although I have, I'm hesitant to say that because before he attacks and murders Eli, he he clearly has messed up his back. You know, he's crouching during that whole drainage speech. <laughs> uh, if, you know, if I have a milkshake, or you have a milkshake, and I have a straw. You see, much. And he is so out of breath and broken and clearly his just lungs are filled with tar from smoking and being <laughs> around oil derricks and mm. he's an alcoholic he, he just seemed like him lying there as eli is is bleeding out very gra- you know, graphically mm-hmm. he just is panting he seemed like he was kind of shutting down so that's true i, I imagine that he dies of either alcoholism or of some, you know, disease, maybe cancer, shortly after that. He just seemed mm-hmm. like he was on the way out. Well, he, yeah. he, does, he yeah. also says he's finished. He's finished, yeah. Yeah, totally. Exactly. And, and PTA, man, he really, uh, he likes to end his films with a bang. Not all of his endings are for everyone, like Phantom Thread, which is just wild. Or like Boogie Nights, which ends with a... Which I don't personally like but i like a lot of his other films yeah mark Wahlberg whipping out his penis on camera and you finally see it after hearing about it for a a whole movie (laughs) but it's very jarring and the pta just loves filmed in the valley right exactly well yeah that's interesting that you say that when you mentioned earlier that he was from the area just that obviously must have been something that he grew up being aware of yeah, is the the adult film industry in the San Fernando Valley, and Magnolia is also based mm-hmm. on in the Valley, and there's the Magnolia Boulevard out. Mm-hmm. And as of this recording, we uh, last week PTA started production on his next film, which is going to take place in the Valley <gasps> in the 1960s. Mm. Oh boy! Starring Bradley Cooper, and that's all we know about it. But it's currently mm. filming now, so we should just so we should just yeah. I was going to say we should start cruising down Van Nuys and uh, Ventura and see yeah, if we can I, I get cannot. stuck in some uh, filming traffic. Which, <laughs> yeah. if you live in LA or anywhere near LA, I'm sure yeah. it's happened to you. Yeah. I got fun fact: I got stuck in traffic getting onto the 101 North uh, when Quentin Tarantino was filming fun Once time. Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, that was really interesting. But I was also trying to get onto the freeway for an hour. <laughs> yeah, Which was also very angering. It was for that shot of Brad Pitt driving with Margaret Qualley. Yeah, it's, I mean, Sunchild. it is, it's literally yeah. a throwaway scene. It probably is on the screen for half a second, and yeah. I was in traffic for an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah. That's <laughs> but the hey, price you it's... gotta pay, Finn. <laughs> 
but it's fun a fun movies. story now. Yeah. So, a uh, quick little anecdote, too. So, speaking of films, you know this, Laura, I think, and maybe, Dan, you've been told this before, too, but back when we lived in Malibu and Mom was just learning that she was pregnant with you, there was a film that was, a movie that was filmed at the house that we were living in at the time. And it was, it's a real, you know, very B movie. <laughs> it happened that one of the stars, though, was Martin Cove of Karate Kid fame. Oh, the, okay. The oh. dojo. Uh, or the, the sensei. Anyway, it was a terrible, terrible movie. <laughs> um, but they spent, uh, I don't know, I have to say maybe a couple of weeks of filming. And, of course, the filming they did was always at night. Mm. And, and I was working, and so I would try to, I'd be trying to sleep. <laughs> uh, in one part of the house, you remember we lived there with a number, many different people, but they were filming at night and they had cables and all sorts yep. of things running through the house. But it was that was quite an interesting uh, experience to have the film being done at the house. And right. anyway, did I mention the title? No. Future Shock. If you ever get a chance, it was a real schlocky movie. We'll have to. But, uh, we'll have to yeah, check we'll that out. You'll have to. You'll have to look it up and. And watch shock. it. I think nice. I watched it once, but it was pretty bad. <laughs> it was pretty bad. Actually, it's kind of your your genre. Yeah. Um, kind of a, a thriller, psychological thriller film. Ooh. So with a, with a little sci-fi edge. Well, not too much sci-fi. Okay. It was, he he plays a he, Martin Cove plays a psychologist or a psychiatrist who kind of messes with the minds of his patients. Okay. Um, and there's it's almost like the. Twilight Zone movie where it has, I think, multiple stories that, that kind of go through. And oh, I don't remember cool. if they're all tied together at any point, but anyway. Yeah. I wanted to shout out to uh, behind-the-line people who worked on the film, There Will Be Blood. So Jack Fisk constructed that 80-foot-tall oil derrick that you see in the film. They, they actually built this thing. He Jack Fisk was the um, art department head mm-hmm. and uh, Steve Kremen was the special effects coordinator who set this thing ablaze and mm. and since it was a real wooden oil derrick once they set it on fire they had one night to shoot that right. scene yeah and, they weren't going to redo it and yeah <laughs> they weren't redoing this this film at a budget of 25 million so most of that money went into securing Daniel Day-Lewis and mm. and building the these sets and the town of Marfa actually had a train track that ran through it which worked mm. for mm. a lot of the scenes mm-hmm. it just worked out but as I mentioned before as we talked about that oil derrick scene one of the most visually stunning sequences mm-hmm. I've ever seen in my life and when it's on fire you can feel the urgency in all the actors there because because it actually was burning mm-hmm. down they mm-hmm. were really in front of these hot hot flames and they Mm -hmm. had to dress up the cameras so they wouldn't melt right and there's a scene where daniel plainview's assistant fletcher Mm -hmm. played by uh, syrian hines he is only about five lines but it's a great little performance Mm -hmm. uh he when they're going down and knocking down all the uh the hooks that for the oil derrick like i was saying you only they only had one shot to do that Mm mm-hmm so they set up the camera and Syrian Hines goes up and he keeps on missing it. And you can feel, you're watching it. You're like, oh, just hit it already. Right. And, and you can see Daniel Day-Lewis in character. He's he's running, but he's kind of waiting for Syrian Hines to hit his mark. But Syrian Hines keeps missing. And then in character, he runs up to go grab it. But then Syrian Hines finally breaks the hook. Right. 
and rolls back and almost knocks Daniel Day Lewis <laughs> in the head with with this thing. So you can kind of see so just how dangerous. Yeah. I mean, it was something like that would be in real life, but I mean, it was real life. They were actually right. <laughs> the fire was there. So absolutely stunning. And compare that to a film like. Deepwater Horizon, which came out a couple of years ago. Now, that movie was about the, the BP oil spill with the yeah. big explosion on that mm-hmm. oil derrick. Now, the special effects in that movie are amazing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that that movie's a bad movie. It's actually a really good movie. But all that special effects, it, it is CGI. Mm-hmm. And you compare that to a single oil derrick fire in this movie... And, I mean, th- th- there is no comparison. Mm, you right. see this real fire next to CGI fire, and it's and you kind of feel... And you, real people reacting to that fire. With real people reacting, right. real heat. There is no comparison. And, of course, it is, it is hard to set things on fire. <laughs> yeah. But I just wanted to shout out those two behind-the-scenes workers who made, made that shot, this scene, possible. And Didn't you talk about the lens, too? And oh, and the lenses, um, Robert Ellswit for the scene used a lens that Roger Deakins had created for the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford, which would create that vignette effect where it'd be a, you know, a circle in the middle, but the outsides were blurred and they used that. They took <laughs> Roger Deakins creation, which he, he and he alone created that lens. He didn't go to a person like mm-hmm. Roger Deakins made it. And Robert Ellswit asked to use it for the shot. Deacons obliged. And, and then, then he lost. And, the then, and then Roger yeah. Deacons ended up losing, not once, but twice yeah. in the same year to Robert Ellswit. But that vignette shot of the fire, I mean, I keep on saying stunning, but you get what I'm trying to say here. Right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Any other closing thoughts? No, just uh, a fabulous performance by Daniel Day Lewis. Oh, yeah. A visually stunning film. And. Mm-hmm. And one that yeah shows you the the darkness that can come from being completely devoted to money and greed and, yeah right and gaining money I, yeah my final closing shot was one of my favorite scenes that just purely has to do with lighting and it's not actually the fire scene but it's right after when Daniel is sitting on the porch of his little workroom and he's on clearly he's on the east side because the sun is rising and it's this really intense I know it's Texan sun but it's this very intense sun that I feel like I that placed me in California sort of as a camper you know and I've had that experience of waking up really early and sitting in my camp chair and having that really bright light come over a mountain and just sort of shine in your eyes and you're kind of squinting and it's it's warm and you know you have your coffee and I think it just that's such a great way of using cinematography to set the geography of a movie you know it just Mm -hmm. it's very successful and it's really incredible that there are so many scenes where as a native Californian you're like wow like I've lived that (laughs) you know yeah yeah amen yeah the movie is currently number 10 on my uh, top 100 list Mm-hmm. It's not moving anytime soon. <laughs> so four to four stars, obviously, for the movie. The book, again, I was really engaged with, but I think I'm just so tied to the movie and will be forever that I lost interest after the 150-page mark. So it's That's a fair. little... Uh, <laughs> 
It's a little bit of an unfair rating for me to go. I'm going two out of four for the book just because I did lose interest so fast. I, I still enjoy it. And if you're a fan of American history or California history, I'd say definitely read this book. But yeah. Yeah. Four out of four for the movie. No questions asked. It was a little too intense for me, I'll be honest. And I didn't feel quite as prepared as I did for No Country for Old Men with the violence just because it's so different from the book. But four to four stars, no question. And uh, yeah, I'm going to knock the book a little bit because it gets a little preachy, like Atlas Shrugged, which yes, I have read. Don't at me. It took me a year, but I read the whole thing. <laughs> so I would say maybe three out of four stars because I did really enjoy the book, but I think it's a very niche. Mm-hmm. How about you? Uh, the book, I would say three out of four. I, I really did enjoy it. It's I had never read Upton Sinclair before. I found it to be really interesting. And like you say, being a... California native, I found it to, the, the history behind it was mm-hmm. really fascinating. Yeah. But maybe tried to cover too much in a yeah. single book. Um, and the movie, yeah, I, I don't, I'm not as much of a cinephile, Danny, as you are, but uh, I liked it very much. I thought that it, it really was striking to me how, how different the, both the tone, the, the focus of the, the film were, were so dramatically different. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I had very high marks. I, I was really pleased with the film. Awesome. Nice. And, well, and thank you for inviting me to oh, come. Oh, of course. Yes. Are you kidding me? <laughs> We're surprised. That, yeah. It's taking <laughs> the man us so who long. has us over at my parents' home every weekend during quarantine <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and houses us and feeds us because <laughs> we get lonely at the apartment. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a pleasure. Glad, glad that we can support you in this endeavor. Support <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah. Thanks for being a listener. Abandon your child. You did not. <laughs> no. I'll tell you though too that that you were scene tempted? was one of the no no that scene when he goes off the train that, that's one of the most painful oh, scenes I've yeah. ever I know. seen in a movie. Oh, he yeah. walks off and the and the and HW's what am I going to do? And he wants to jump. He wants to get off the train, but yeah, um, Daniel had already thought about that and he left his assistant oh, on there to keep him. Yeah. So. yeah, painful. Yeah. All right. Well, this was absolute pleasure. Don't want it to be over, but. We got to go to bed. (laughs) Yeah, it's like 10 p.m. or 9. All right. And we'll see you on the next one. What's the next Dune? Ooh, boy. That can't be true. Well, we... Okay, (laughs) it doesn't matter. We'll see you on the next episode. See you on the next one. (laughs) Whichever one it is. The film is lit. The film is lit. Bye. (laughs) Have I been to my child?